It is my pleasure to introduce you to our guest preacher this morning. Rich Suddy invited him to speak at our HCA graduation yesterday, so we became additional beneficiaries as he agreed to preach here today. Dr. Dominic Aquila has been a pastor, teacher, missionary, and denominational leader in the Presbyterian Church in America for many years. Most notably, Dr. Aquila served as the moderator of the 34th PCA General Assembly in 2006, and for Presbyterians, that's as close to being a bishop as you could possibly be. He is currently the president of the New Geneva Theological Seminary in Colorado Springs. Additionally, he serves as an adjunct professor at several other seminaries, including Sangre de Cristo Seminary, where I also teach, and where our intern, Josh Curry, is currently a student. He has several areas of expertise, but one particular specialty is his analysis of current trends in Christianity. Along these lines, he is currently the editor for uh, the summer or the independent magazine called the Aquila Report. You can see posts there just about every day. He's married to Davaline, and together they have four children, 13 grandchildren, and seven great-grandchildren. Now, an additional note of interest, maybe the most interesting thing. I don't know the exact amount of Italian-Americans that serve as teaching elders in the PCA, but I'm going to say it's not many. I'm guessing that a third of all the Italian teaching elders in the PCA are here at Redeemer today. <laughs> I'm going to guess that. Dr. Aquila is a true father in the faith and an encourager of the church. The Lord grants wise men in each generation that we may learn from and receive encouragement from. Godly guidance comes from these men, and Dominic is such a man. Dr. Aquila, we welcome you to Redeemer, and we look forward to sitting under the preaching of the Word as you bring it today. That's right. Italian. That's it. We would announce at uh, General Assembly, when everybody was announcing they were having uh, reunions about different things, and I would get up and say, well, all the uh, Italian-Americans that are uh, here will meet in the telephone booth under the under the searchlight at midnight. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's we're a small small lot, but very powerful lot. And um, in fact, I should have said at the first service that uh, Fred Greco, who's another one of the uh, Italians, he's serving as a pastor in Houston, uh, went to the same high school as uh, both Nathan and um, uh, uh, Pastor Tony. And uh, so the, um, and he and I, we recorded um, 16 uh, uh, videos, uh, 20 minutes, usually most of them about 20 minutes long, on something really, really, really exciting called the Book of Church Order. <laughs> and uh, so we decided that being Italians instructing Scots-Irish people, that we had to keep it simple. And... Uh, <laughs> And so we did. So it's online. It's on YouTube. If you go to YouTube and then put more in the PCA, it'll pop up and you'll see them. And if you want to get yourself excited, you're having insomnia or something, and you want to learn about the Book of Church Order, uh, just go to uh, that site on YouTube, and you will uh, learn a lot. A lot of uh, uh, sessions and other uh, church members are interested in uh, this, so that we'll uh, you know, be able to understand the book church order like you said BCO because I jokingly say that most elders can't spell BCO 
and uh, they need to do that. But it's a joy to be with you, and thank you for the invitation from the session uh, to be a part of uh, the, that, this uh, day and also to be uh, part of uh, the Heritage graduation uh, yesterday. Our scripture is uh, Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11 and uh, the verse through verse 15, and I'm going to connect this with some other parts of Titus that are really important. Uh, and you see the title of the message is Grace, More Than We Think It Is. Uh, and there's more to it than we really understand, and I just trust that through this message it might help us to understand how much greater it really is than what we normally think of it, and we'll tie that together. So beginning at verse 11, now I'm reading from the 1984 version of the New International Version. You don't want to have the 2012 or 11 version because they did some messing up with that. Uh, so I know that the authorized version here is probably the ESV, uh, but pardon me if I do this. Uh, read it from the, this is God's word. Listen to it now carefully. Verse 11, uh, Titus 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Grace is greater than what we think. Normally, when we think of grace, we restrict it to how we come into the faith. And we're all familiar with Paul's statement, uh, very commonly uh, taught from Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourself. It, referring to faith, is a gift of God. So lest you boast about anything. Uh, and so we think of grace as how we get in. But we realize that's not the only thing that grace does. That grace is life extensive. It covers over many other things that we have in the Christian life. And sometimes we think that we start with grace and then after that it's all up to us. And in fact, that's not the case. Grace is how we get in, but it's also how we stay in. As the hymn says, by, you've brought us safe, safely, grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. It will do that. And so the Bible exhorts us in many other places to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Well, you're not going to grow in something if it's already over. No, it's still something that's alive and present, and so we're growing in grace and knowledge of the things of God that he gives to us. Now, in this passage, I want to see, show you how Paul connects that principle of grace being more of what than just how you get in as God calls us by his grace to trust Christ and continues on in the Christian life and in the life of the church. Uh, when Paul wrote Titus, we are told in chapter 1, verse 5, that Paul begins by saying, the reason I left you in Crete is that you might finish, straighten, uh, continue the work that we began by appointing or ordaining elders in the church. So I left you in Crete for this purpose, 
that you will continue to do this work. And that's how he begins. And so here is the way I envision it is that Paul and Titus and their entourage went from town to town on the island of Crete. They preached the gospel. They saw people coming to Christ. And then Paul said, I have to leave. Albatidus, don't despair. I'm leaving you here in order to finish the work because it's not enough just to have converts. We have to have the church. And so I'm going to leave you here. Uh, I'm going to write you, though, a letter, and it'll be a church planting manual. So this is basically what it is. It's a, minister, a, mantle, a manual for church planting and then how to maintain the church along the way. So what does he do? He says, okay, the reason I left you in Crete is in order that you might set in order, then finish that which we began. And then the first thing he says is that you appoint elders because you can't have a church without elders. They are required. You have to give the oversight and accountability to the people uh, who are growing in that grace and knowledge. And he gives the qualifications comparable to what he does in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And then he warns that the reason elders are necessary, part of it, is not only to uh, teach sound doctrine, and the word sound that is used here gives us the word uh, that is uh, cleansed or uh, to be um, uh, you know, perfect or right. Um, and, so the, uh, and so that word just helps us to make it sound because it's clean. Uh, hygienic, all right, so sound doctrine, because there will be in any church, in every generation, we face it, uh, all sorts of false teachings, uh, people who are come up with notions and ideas out of whole cloth, uh, cults will develop out of that. So we need elders who know the word, who are uh, hygienic or clean and sound doctrine, so they'll protect the church. Then he goes into chapter 2. Now, they're different people. Look how the verse chapter 2 begins. You must teach what is in accord with hygienic or sound doctrine. And so he uh, begins to say that there are different groups within the life of the church. Any church that is valid, just like you have here, uh, will be multi-generational. Uh, they'll be, um, you know, they, uh, multicultural probably. Uh, definitely different associations that we have backgrounds in. And so you start out with the older man. He says, uh, this is what you're to do, Tim, uh, Titus, with older men. Make sure that they are doing things that are helpful in sound doctrine. And then he talks about older women and says, what do they need? And also, what do they do? Uh, they will work with younger women and express things and teach them. And then they're the, uh, the younger men and even dealing with slaves. Uh, those who are working for other people. So he covers all of those different strata and groups within the life of the church and says you need to make sure your ministry covers that whole swath. And then he says, why is that important? That's what we come to in verse 11. Look how verse 11 has a connective word, for or since or because. In other words, everything he has said from chapter 1, verse 5, all the way through the end of chapter 10, uh, verse 10, chapter 2, uh, is based on this. Because, you do all these things, because the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. That's the reason you do it. In other words, grace is not only for our own coming into the faith, it's not only to carry us along in the faith as we grow, but it also directs our ministry. So whether it's a church plant or an organized church, it is all undergirded by this grace of God. 
it's greater than what we think. It's much broader than just entering into the kingdom uh, through salvation. No, it's much broader. So, the three things that we'll say, three Presbyterian points, uh, and it's first manifestation of grace. Notice again, verse 11. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It manifests itself. The word appears comes from and gives us the word epiphany. Uh, and epiphany means that something gets bright. Uh, lights are coming on. Uh, it's an idea that burst on the scene. And so it's something that captures our attention. So when the grace of God came and it appeared, it always comes with that epiphany, with this sense of you know, brilliance that captures our attention. It's manifested in a mild way. We have different places throughout the scripture where God shows that. Uh, just let me point out a couple. Uh, at the very beginning, uh, we just read in our confession in uh, chapter 7 of the covenants, uh, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, God could have just washed his hands of the whole thing and said nothing. I'm not going to do anything. You uh, made a choice and you're broken and see you later. But he didn't do that. Uh, he uh, renewed the covenant. He entered into another covenant. And he, uh, he told Adam and Eve he's going to do something. And he did. Now, to manifest it, the appearance, the gracious thing that God did was, when Adam and Eve fell into the sin, what did they do? Their eyes were opened. They saw they were naked, which meant they were now ashamed. And they covered themselves with fig leaves. Let me suggest to you this, that the first indication and the first act of human beings after they fell into sin was a self-salvation. They covered themselves with fig leaves because they thought that would bring salvation, that they would cover their nakedness, they'd cover their sin, and it didn't work. So where did God's grace appear? You go to verse 21 of chapter 3, and it says, before God put him out of the garden, he took off their, their false security and their false way of salvation, which was, I'm going to do it by sewing fig leaves together. And he clothed them with animal skins, indicating that the only thing that can redeem us is the being dressed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And he has to do it. They didn't take the clothes off. They didn't put them on. God did it. And that's what he does with each of us in a full sense. So it appeared and now they were redeemed people, and now they still had to be placed out of the garden. Another place where this grace appeared uniquely was in Exodus 19, where we have the account where Moses went up to the mountain at God's beckoning at Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. But before he called Moses to come up, God appeared in this very thick, uh, deep, dark cloud. It was the Shekinah cloud. The glory, the presence of God was over this inanimate rock so that that whole mountain was holy because God is holy altogether. And that cloud indicated that fact. And so he said, Moses, tell the people, do not touch the mountain. And even if an animal does, you'll die. Why? Because you don't mess with God's holiness. He was present there and tell them to pay attention to that fact. And so Moses went up at God's invitation, and he comes down with the Ten Commandments, and he reads it to the people. That was an appearing of grace, because now the people were being told, this is not only how you come in, but also how you live, so that you're reflecting the holiness of God, as we'll come to in just a moment. 
It's important we see it. But probably the grandest appearance was Christ himself. But when he came initially just being born of Mary in Bethlehem, there, was no, there, was no, uh, there were no bright lights. Uh, it was very simple, very humble kind of uh, birth. And uh, he was born in Bethlehem, and they didn't have hardly any, even a good ba baby blanket to wrap him in. They wrapped him in strips of clothing, cloth. But out in the shepherd's field, what happened? The uh, angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds. It was pitch black dark. Maybe there was a campfire, but it was just dark. And all of a sudden, poof, there was that epiphany. And the angel appears to these, elders, to these shepherds. They weren't expecting it. And said, over there in the city of David has been born to you one who is Christ the Lord. And you will know this. This is the sign. This is the indicator. He's the one that's wrapped in all these strips of cloth. So that means if there were other children that were born that night, and they were going, looking for who this child would be, that would be the sign to look for him, humility. But it, the angel there was bright, but that wasn't all. What appeared next? All of a sudden appeared a, a host, the heavenly host, and they were singing the great chorus from heaven, singing glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace with those people, those men with whom God is pleased. There was the appearance. So Christ appeared, in humility, the glory of the Lord appeared, and they saw God at work in a mighty way. That's what it refers to here. Every time someone becomes a believer, when you became a believer, it's because Christ's uh, uh, grace epiphanized. It, it came in power, even if it was a quiet conversion, and that's how you came to know Christ. And so it appears and it brought salvation uh, the, uh, the grace of uh, the light of salvation to all people. So that's the first thing, the manifestation of grace. So why should you do church planning? Why should you live your life correctly? Why do you have your ministry based on grace? Because, Paul says to Titus, because the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. That's why we do it, and we're to be faithful in the ministry to which he has called us and the life that we're to live. So there's the manifestation, the appearance, the epiphany. But notice number two in verse, 11, in verse 12, just the few first words. It starts, and this grace which has appeared, it teaches us. It teaches us. We stop right there. What is it teaching us? Well, the word that is here translated teach is not the common word that is used throughout the New Testament. The word that's used here it is the word uh, that says that we're training. Uh, it's a training word, a discipline word, a discipling word. And that means it's, that grace is discipling us. It's disciplining us. It's uh, shaping us. It's honing us to do something. The same word used by Paul in Ephesians 6.4, we hear it when uh, parents present their children for baptism, one of the vows they take is, do you promise to raise your children in the nurture, that's the word, and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. It's also used of how God shapes us and disciplines us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, that the Lord chastens, disciplines those whom he loves. And therefore, an evidence of your, your sonship, your being a child of God, is God's discipline, his shaping you. So that's what this word is. This grace that has appeared here is working 
to uh, prepare us for living the life uh, in Christ and encouraging us all the way along the way. So it's like uh, honing, like uh, the arrow and hunter in the day might get a branch that looks like he could make an arrow out of it. He breaks it off or cuts it off, and then he takes a sharp knife and he hones the edge of it, the, the point, to make a fine, fine point so that when it goes into his uh, bow, that he's able to shoot it, and it's so sharp it's able to pierce the animal that you're trying to kill that you bring home some food, all right? And, and that's what God is doing. Grace sharpens us. It hones us. It disciplines us. It encourages us. It shapes us. It does all those things. So it's not just getting in and knowing that we're redeemed. No, this is the grace now that's doing all of this for us and to us. Because God is actively involved by that grace. He's doing that. And this here, we have the motivation of grace. So the manifestation, it appears. The motivation, it shapes. Number three, we have, begin the rest of verses 12 and the other verses here, is the morality of grace. Now, I want you to hear this carefully. I'm not saying it's going to make you moral. It's not that it, you are to be moralistic. We're not going to start preaching moralisms, little cute phrases about being nice and being sweet. No, it's talking about looking like God. So being moral or holy like God. Okay, that's what it's here. The morality of grace is this, that God does something in us through it. So what does it teach us? What is it shaping us to do? So that we will be able to say no to ungodliness and worldliness and worldly passions. He just uses two words there. In a moment, we'll just look at another passage. It gives a few more words. Listen now. We begin ungodly and worldly. That's how we're born. We're born in and with sin. We are not righteous before God. And unless God does something for us and to us, uh, then we, we will be left in that degradation. We will be left in our sin. And we know that because we, we, we live it all the time. As I was sharing with the congregation at the first service, it said that uh, we know that and we see it worked out with as we're raising our children, uh, that uh, we get the children, especially if you have small children, you remember when they were about two, and we, what do we call the two-year terrible twos? Why, why do we do that? Because uh, without any provocation, without any instruction from the parents, they become terrible. Or as Vadi Bakum says, they become vipers in a diaper. And uh, the, the idea is that you don't sit them down and have lessons on how to be selfish. Okay, Johnny, Susie, sit down. I'm gonna, your next door neighbor friends are going to come over. They're going to play with your toys, and you're going to uh, not want them to play. So let's practice how to be selfish. And so they come, when they come over, and the parent will take the toy and say, uh, this is, you know, I like to play with this. And you, what do you do? No, you grab it and you say, no, you can't. It's mine. Where'd they learn that? I mean, we're trying to say, no, don't do that. No, be, you know, share, be nice, be sweet. No, naturally, you don't sit down and teach them that. And when they come over and you're lying to us, no one's saying, okay, here's how you tell a good lie. You know, let's practice telling a good lie. You know, you have something you want to share that you don't want to really tell me, tell me a good lie. Let's practice that. No, 
that's where we start out with these worldly passions, these ungodly ways. It's so natural, you don't have to do any instruction at all. In fact, you're trying to break it by saying, no, 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 no. You're saying no to them, and they're going, yes, 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 yes. Okay, but now we come to Christ, and this grace that is, has that moral, holy ring to it teaches us to say no, not to God, not to his truth, but to these worldly passions, these ungodly ways, and that means that we're renouncing. We, and that means we're renouncing not only those sins, but also the affections that we have with them. Why? Because we grow up in and with sin, we develop these patterns, this love affair with what we are and what we're doing. And those are, that's a love affection. We just don't call it that because it sounds a little bit, you know, really bad. But it is bad. And we have to say, I'm no, that can never hold me again. And then he goes on to say, this teaches us to say no to ungodliness and then to live. That is to say yes to uh, live uh, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So that means now we announce that we have a new relationship, a, a new alignment. That is an alignment with Jesus. And our affection is now directed to him. And so we, we, we want to say no here and yes here. And that's what Paul's saying. And how does, how does it do it? it? This grace teaches us that. That is, it disciplines us to that. It shapes us to that. That's what grace does. So it's not only how you get in, but also how you stay in and how you grow up into grace. And that becomes the moral principle. By the way, Paul brings it up again if you look at verse 14. He talks about our great Savior appearing. There's that word epiphany again. And he's in verse 13, and he says, who gave himself for us, listen, to redeem us from all wickedness, he only going to use one word now to cover everything, and to purify himself for himself a people who are um, his very own. So he's now dealing with us, he's purifying, he, we're dealing with wickedness, and he's purifying us. Moving from renouncing to announcing, from this affection to this affection. Every one of us here, because of our background, because we were born in with sin, we have those natural inclinations to just think and act in a way that's contrary to God. And what grace does is it breaking that bondage. It's saying it teaches us, encourages us to move away from that and to move over here. And he enables us to do so by the power of that grace enabled by the Holy Spirit. Beautiful picture of moral picture. I've used a phrase that I developed a number of years ago in teaching on this whole notion of the Christian life because we're talking here about sanctification. What does it mean to walk in Christ? How do we reflect his character? And the phrase I've come up with is this. The grace, the God who gives grace is a moral God. Okay, if you feel uncomfortable with that word, then it's holy. The God who gives grace is a moral God. He's holy. And along with that grace, he also gives his moral character so that we're now to reflect him and not what we used to be. And so because God can't be in a relationship with us and give grace 
unattached from his own character. When we talk about that, it's really talking about the fruit of the Spirit. We have it summarized in Galatians. We have nine ver adjectives used as a fruit of the Spirit, but that's not exhaustive. Those are just representative. And what uh, is it that we're looking at? We're looking at the character of Christ. We all love to quote uh, Romans 8.28, especially in hard times, to sort of get our bearings straight. Um, you know, we're having difficulty. Okay, let me, let me remember what, oh yes. And God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What does it mean to be called according to his purpose? Because that's part of the comfort that we receive. Verse 29 is important because it defines that purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the likeness of his son. The word likeness there gives us our, translates to, or transliterates to icon. He becomes our icon. We're going to mirror him. We're going to be like Jesus. Okay, now define the moral character of Christ. Go ahead and make a list of all the things that you see in the scripture that, that speak about Christ and his character. And, you know, it's going to be a, a list that is talking about holiness. Actually, you could summarize it with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments really understood correctly are nothing more than the expression of God's holy nature. And that's the reason why it, 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 it's important for us to understand them that way. Even though they're giving with the don'ts, just flip them over and, and see them in a positive way. For instance, you shall have no other gods before me. That is, there's only one God. That's a virtue. God says, I am the one and only. Uh, he tells us how to worship him, how to honor him, uh, how to rest in him. That's the fourth commandment. How to follow his uh, order in our lives. The fifth commandment. How to see the importance of life, and the, that the life he created. The sixth commandment. Seventh commandment. How to honor uh, sexual relationships and human relationship. How to be good stewards. Eighth commandment. Do not steal. How to tell the truth. Ninth commandment. Do not lie. And the tenth commandment. How to be satisfied. You see? Those are, there are they set out for you in a very positive way, to say, why are those there? Because that's the standard of God himself. There's the characteristics that are summarized in those 10 words. And that's what we have here. We have this picture of God is saying, when we are in the world, as we, before we become Christians, we develop these attachments, these habits and patterns and affections that are tied to the world. Now we come to Christ and it's broken by grace and we come and now the whole thing is we're falling in love with Christ. Conforming to his likeness means that we're gonna look like him. And that's how grace is at work in us. In chapter four of Ephesians, uh, he expounds it a little bit more and he, uh, beginning at verse 17, there are many other places Paul does this, but this one is my favorite just because he gives some good examples beginning at verse 17, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles. Now he's speaking to the believers in Ephesus. They came out of being a world of Gentile. That is, the Gentile becomes a, a byword that defines the substance, the essence of what it means to be in the world and to be hooked by the world and being anchored and affection and affected to the world. So I don't want you to be any more like that because that's how you came 
and what was the result? You were futile in your thinking, darkened in your understanding, separated from God, separated from the life of God because of the, your, your sins. And you were hardened of heart uh, because of that. You, that's not a real beautiful description, is it? Now, he says, going on, having lost all sensitivity, because unbelievers basically aren't sensitive spiritually, and we can sometimes be that way. And Paul says, I don't want you to be that way. So I want you to not indulge in any kind of impurity. You, however, didn't come to know Christ that way. Surely you have heard and been taught in him according to this truth that you are now to put off those things. How do you put it off? You can't do it apart from grace. Grace is greater than what we think. Not only do you get in, it strengthens you so that you are able to put off the things that are contrary, those affections, and then if you go down to verse 23, to make new in the attitude of your mind so that you can put on the new self, what we are now in Christ. And grace is teaching us that. Grace teaches us these things. In fact, look at verse 14 again of uh, Titus 2. Who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people uh, that are uh, his very own uh, to do what is good. Now, notice what Paul is not saying. Please listen carefully because this is where it gets confusing. I'm not saying here and preaching to you, I want you to get it, leave this place and resolve to be good. Uh, and I'm going to tell you how to do it. Here's a checklist. Don't listen. That is not what I'm doing, and that's not what the Scripture is saying. To do good is the result of conforming yourself to Jesus. As a result, you're then you were created unto good works. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, right? So why did grace come? In order that you might be conformed to that goodness. And you're reflecting the character of Christ. That's what it means to follow him in grace. Sometimes a simple phrase after saying all those words can be summarized and Jesus does summarize it in three words. In Luke 17:32, as he's giving a teaching on some other things, in the middle of that teaching, he says, remember Lot's wife. Hmm? Boy, that sounds real spiritual, right? Remember Lot's wife. Actually, he's saying, remember what she did that you aren't to follow. And you go back to Genesis 19. Lot, his wife, and their children were in Sodom and Gomorrah, they're being swept up with that culture. They were being like the Gentiles. Uh, their affections were being tied to what they saw. And uh, Abraham was praying that God would take them out, and so he sent a couple of angels, and they led them out of Sodom. And as they were beginning to leave, because God was going to bring judgment, he said to them, all of them, don't look back. Something's going to happen. Don't look back. Now, the looking back wasn't so much that God didn't want them to see the horrific judgment that was going to fall on those cities. It was more like, don't let your heart, your friendships, your, your feelings and your emotions continue to stay in Sodom. I'm going to take you out of that. Remember what happened as the fire was falling down? Is that Lot's wife couldn't help it and she turned. She turned into a pillar of salt. Her turning was not because she violated physically by turning. It's because her heart was still there. 
Grace addresses our heart's affections. And if our heart's affections are tied to this world, then we need to remember Lot's wife and not turn and say, I, can, can, I can't break these habits and, and th these affections. No, here he says, grace instructs you, shapes you to look to Jesus, to announce what he does. Every single one of us here, if we can claim grace, everyone who knows Jesus here, we all wrestle with sin. There's still entanglements. There's things that pull us over. We want to look. And when that happens, we need to remember by the power of God's goodness and grace, enabled by the Holy Spirit, we need to focus on what has given to us in grace and put off the past, put on the new. And we all will go through it. Sometimes it'll be mild. Other times it'll just be a warfare. And when that happens, cry out to God for his grace to just come pouring out on you. And notice what I'm saying, not saying, please, 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 this is not a teaching on moralism. It's not a teaching on be nice, be good, and be sweet. It's a teaching on how to fall in love with Jesus because of God's grace, and then your character is developed with reference to him. That's what you need to do. That's the morality of grace that really works. When we understand that, we are transformed. Um, it was just uh, reading, someone reminded me of um, the biography, uh, that uh, autobiography that uh, Jerry Bridges wrote. And you know, Jerry's written a number of different uh, books. I had the privilege of knowing him as he was writing many of these books. And, his character was just uh, reflective of what was in there, and he's wrestled. And he basically came up with uh, seven uh, lessons he learned throughout his life that shaped him. There are seven, I'm not gonna read all seven, just a couple that he mentions. He says the number three is the pursuit of holiness and godly character is neither by self-effort or simply letting Christ live his life through you. Remember, that's a very good one. He says, I learned this. It's not through that self-effort. Rather, it does involve our most dil diligent efforts, but with a recognition that we are dependent on the Holy Spirit to enable us and to bless those efforts that I call dependent responsibility. Isn't that a beautiful term? Dependent responsibility. And that's the promise of grace. So grace is greater than what we think. You get in and you stay in by the power of God. Paul in Philippians 1.6 says it carefully. He says uh, that, that the work that he has begun in you, he will continue until the day of Christ. He began it by grace. He sustains you now by grace. And you'll enter into eternity by grace. The hall of grace. Different stages along the way. May that be a help to you as you're grappling with any issue, any affections, that you grab onto Jesus and you look straight at him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for reminding us that from the very beginning with Adam and Eve's eyes were open to their sin until the very day that Jesus appeared. You have been at work to bring uh, grace into this world. And even after that, Father, we are all who believe in you, uh, trophies of your grace 
where our lives have been turned around because of what you have done. Now, Father, we plant ourselves in you and desire that we be enabled, emboldened by the enabling of the Holy Spirit to have that diligent responsibility. Thank you, Father, that you care enough about us to challenge us in that. And so may that grace shape us, hone us, discipline us, encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.